This is Beautiful Garbage, an Osiris Media podcast exploring how America unleashed punk rock on the world. I'm Kevin Hogan, and over the next six episodes, we will be tracing the development of punk rock from American garages and bars to England in the mid to late 70s and back, looking at the important figures in their work. In episode one, Ready to Rumble, we explore sound and style tracing both technological advances and the social and political factors that inform the punk aesthetic. From rock and roll's earliest days through the formation of two of the genre's four cornerstones, the MC5 and the Velvet Underground. Punk rock. Sound attitude, and fashion. Three chords and a furious beat voicing alienation and social unrest. It's the music anyone can play. The illogical conclusion of America emerging from World War II, prosperous and affluent, a product of the American melting pot, where blues, rockabilly, and surf rock morph in the garages of Detroit and the streets of New York. We interrupt this program for a special news bulletin. America's the greatest land of all. The rise of the suburbs, with the promise of a better life, began a flight from the big cities in the 1950s and changed the fabric of American society. Children were no longer expected to work to help support the family, and they were given ample leisure time and opportunities previous generations didn't have. WXRT's Terry Hemmert explains. Parents gave their kids money, and kids had opportunities to make money. So they had money to buy records. They had money to buy clothes. They had access to an automobile, which was unusual. There were radios in the cars. So all of a sudden, this music became the soundtrack for a very uh, large and affluent uh, group of people. Record labels responded in kind by releasing more and more rock and roll records which in turn led to more musicians switching to playing rock and roll, each adding their own unique takes on the fledgling genre. This was coupled with technological advances, some planned, some not, that came to define the punk sound. And the most important of these is distortion, the slightly blown out, fuzzy sound that defines most rock and roll from its earliest days. Today done with pedals and effects, In 1951, the sound first emerged from a damaged tube amplifier on an early Sun Records session. Willie Kizzard, guitarist for Ike Turner's Rhythm Kings, had either shorted out or dropped his amplifier on the way to a recording session, and with no way to replace or fix it, went in and recorded his part for Jackie Brenston's Rocket 88. happened to the amplifier when we had a flat tire we took the amp out the car and it was raining did nothing for it set that straight nothing fell off the top of the car 
The rain got on and shorted it out. That's what messed it up. Listen to the fun that's in that thing. I mean, there's everything going for that record that would appeal to younger people. And boy, was that what I was looking for. The tone he achieved was revolutionary in that moment. And what was seen as an unwanted side effect of playing loud became a go-to sound on a slew of recordings that followed over the next few months, including the Howl and Wolf classic, How Many More Times. The sound that would become rock and roll when its bastard child punk had been born. Meanwhile, in Hollywood, the disposable income the record companies were vying for had competition in movies that were geared to youth culture. Documentary filmmaker Jeffrey Chown explains. We saw the rise of the, the youth movies, uh, the, the biker movies, the, uh, uh, the, the beach movies that came out, uh, rock and roll movies, uh, and movies featuring uh, big Hollywood talent like James Dean, Montgomery Cliff, um, and uh, Marlon Brando, people that uh, youth culture were able to relate to and to kind of adopt as their icons and the, the people that expressed their values and their sense of uh, uh, society and culture. A film like Brando's The Wild Ones was just dangerous enough to attract these teenagers and their disposable income. Hey, Johnny, what are you rebelling against? What do you got? <laughs> Brando and his angry young man persona became the model for both fashion and attitude. And when you add in the wild showmanship of early rock and roll, an unholy trinity formed. Parents felt uneasy hearing the primal distorted music and seeing their children embrace a degenerate look. But the showmanship, with its raw sexuality and reckless abandon, was what ultimately made this cultural phenomenon come to a head. Teenage savages go wild in a juvenile jungle of lust and lawlessness. And I believe with all of my heart that it is a contributing factor to our juvenile delinquency of today. When adults began to speak out about the subversive nature of raw culture, it became all the more appealing to American youth. This is where the first turn toward punk happened. Rockabilly. Which took the raw power of rhythm and blues and fused it with elements from Appalachia and Nashville. It was a combination of young white guys mixing all of their hillbilly roots with what they had learned later, which which was Howlin' Wolf, hey, hey, you know, and uh, we were adding all that into what we did. And that's that's rockabilly, the whole combination of it. A song like 1957's "Flying Saucers Rock and Roll" by Billy Lee Riley and his Little Green Men was all raucous sound and attitude. And so it started the whole rock and roll thing of oh. I don't really have to know how to play guitar, to play guitar. But the underlying theme was you don't have to know what to do. Pick one up, do it, make noise. And I think that was a real germ of what became rock and roll was, oh, make noise. I saw the rock and roll. I couldn't understand the thing they said about the 
standing in direct contrast to the watered-down, sanitized version of rhythm and blues that Elvis had masterfully co-opted, pushing boundaries with their lyrics and primal beat. Then in 1958, Link Ray upped the game, releasing Rumble. It's just a little instrumental I did uh, when I was doing record hops with uh, a TV disc jockey in, in, in D.C. And we were doing these record hops and a, and a fight broke out, you know, and I started playing instrumental to the fight, you know. And uh, we went into the studio, everybody started, you know, uh, say, hey, man, play this song again. And I didn't know what I was doing because I was just making fun of the fight, you know. And, uh, and the kids said, hey, play it again. So uh, I said, oh, maybe I've got something here. So we went to a studio uh, on a one-track grooming the that's all they had, you know, and recorded it, you know. Legend has it Ray stabbed the speaker of his amplifier with a pin to get the distorted sound on this down and dirty instrumental, perfectly conveying the frustration of pure angst that was manifesting itself as aggression. From this even rawer sounds develop, notably in the rise of surf music and its cousin, Garage Rock. Dick Dale, together with Leo Fender, achieved several more technological advances in the early 60s that allowed guitarists to play loud without destroying their equipment and created what is known as surf music. I, I worked closely with, with Leo, like we, we'd, I'd go to his home at night. Um, now, when I was playing at the Rendezvous, when I would play, when we had 17 kids, it was okay, but when we had 4,000 people, the sound would be sucked up. There'd be no fat sound. So Leo and Freddie would come down and say, now this is what Dick is trying to show us. And he would hear what I was trying to show by the heavy staccato on the string. So we created the, uh, we blew up about 48 speakers and amplifiers. They'd actually literally catch on fire. The speakers would just burn up. And so he ended up coming up with this output transformer that had a real beefy fat sound made by Triad. And when, as I say, when he died, he took the secret with him. Everything was tight, strong, with an attitude almost. Everybody was feeling the music, not listening to it, but feeling the music. It was music that was decidedly different from the Beach Boys, Beatles, and Elvis that dominated AM radio and spoke to a bored, disaffected youth in America's burgeoning suburbs. Cultural anthropologist Elaine Tyler May sums it up. Everyone watched Ozzy and Harriet and assumed 
that everyone they knew lived that life. And then they went around pretending that they lived it too. But no one really did. Even Ozzie and Harriet didn't. <laughs> so on some level, there's been a myth all along. And part of the plague of the 50s was the incredible personal efforts, the incredible pain involved in perpetuating that myth about one's own family, about one's own happiness in that family, about the health of that family. The glow of the 50s had dimmed. That 100 years after the Emancipation Proclamation, the United States of America still faces a racial crisis. The quest for civil rights drew battle lines in America. For the first time, large parts of the country saw hatred and racism up close. We are tired of being beaten by policemen. We are tired of seeing our people locked up in jail over and over again. And then you holler, be patient. How long can we be patient? We want our freedom and we want it now. While overseas, participation in a civil war between the North and South Vietnamese and the Cold War with the USSR that was moving toward its third decade left many of the youngest Americans wondering what happened to the perfect life they were promised. It's a strange war with strange onlookers. U.S. resolution was firm and strongly worded. Cuba became the focus of world attention. Here centered the most critical threat of global war since the surrender of Germany 17 years ago. The teenagers who loved rock and roll in the 50s were now the adults. And their youngest siblings were now the teenagers, raised on TV, who cast a suspicious eye toward them and their parents. These teenagers, like all teenagers, wanted something to call their own, something a little harder, a little more shocking, Something to make early rock and roll and rockabilly a quaint reminder of an idealized time. I well, everybody's heard about the bird. Enter the trash men with Surfing Bird. Hailing from Minnesota, the dual guitar threat of Tony Anderson and Dale Winslow, along with bassist Bob Reed and drummer Steve Warner, were the first to push surf music just a little further. The song, with its unintelligible lyric and beat kicked into hyperdrive, became a hit. And in 1964, they made it to American Bandstand. Are you, are you the only, and I hesitate, I put quote unquote, because there'll be some cynics who'll listen to that and say, singing, what kind of business? It's a strange sound, did you create it? Yes, I, I have to agree with you, it is a very strange sound. And we, uh, the four of us in the group, did write the song. When did you do this thing, and what on earth inspired you to come up with and all of that crazy stuff? I heard that record, I fell in love with it. I said, that has got to be a hit, and it was. Well, probably I've just been watching too many Tarzan movies, but... Along with bands like the Monks and the Sonics, their sound came to be known as garage rock, and like Rockabilly, it provided a foil to most pop music of the time.
more primal than surf music. Fast, loud, and for a disenfranchised youth, it fueled the dreams of hundreds of kids in high school rock bands pounding away on secondhand guitars. You know, the guitar sound is just so gritty. Uh, the vocals are amazing. The drummer is so propulsive. It's, uh, it's such great, great stuff. It was organic, free of the pop constraints most radio-friendly music embraced. Instead played outside the lines with lyrics focused on general teenage angst as opposed to boy meets girl fantasies. It was the purest distillation of rock and roll's potential to offend up to that point. It was also a reevaluation of what popular music could be and do. Running parallel to the 180-degree turn popular culture was taking in 1967, as the summer of love exploded into American homes on the 6 o'clock news. Well, there are the hippies. They make you uncomfortable, because there is obviously something wrong with the world they never made, if it leads them to these grotesqueries. But granting the faults of society, you can say three things about them. They, at their best, are trying for a kind of group sainthood, and saints running in groups are likely to be ludicrous. They depend on hallucination for their philosophy. This is not a new idea, and it has never worked. And finally, they offer a spurious attraction to the young, a corruption of the idea of innocence. Nothing in the world is as appealing as real innocence, but it is, by definition, a quality of childhood. People who can grow beards and make love are supposed to move from innocence to wisdom. This is Harry Reasoner. Bands played long, freeform shows at various reclaimed ballrooms around the city. Sex and drugs were no longer seen as taboo, and a new way of thinking was born. Sadly, this perceived unlimited freedom led down some dark roads and the utopia that was being sold didn't last long. But for a time it gave voice to those angry about the Vietnam War and became the soundtrack for the upheaval in middle America that rose from it. No, I don't want to read. I don't want to read. I'm an educated American. I don't, I gotta find out what it's about. We had children that were friends with each other. So it, it, it was sad for us when uh, the Vietnam War came along and we had such different views on what was patriotism and what was the right stand to take. And we have been wrong from the beginning of our adventure in Vietnam. I don't know about you. I ain't going to study war. No more. Good evening. Dr. Martin Luther King, the apostle of nonviolence in the civil rights movement, 
has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. My thanks to all of you, and now it's on to Chicago, and let's win there. Senator Kennedy has been shot. Is that possible? Is that possible? It's good. Is it possible, ladies and gentlemen? It is possible. He has. Not only Senator Kennedy. Oh, my God. Senator Kennedy has been shot. There have been some demonstrations at this early hour in downtown Chicago's Grant Park. We heard a moment ago that tear gas has been used. Mayor Richard Daley vowed to keep it peaceful, even if it took force to keep the peace. He was backed by 12,000 police, 5,000 National Guardsmen, 7,500 regular Army troops. The guards used tear gas, but the police used nightsticks. Mr. Chairman, Colorado rises to a point of information. Is there any rule under which Mayor Daley can be compelled to suspend the police state terror perpetrated this minute on kids in front of the Conrad Hilton? The call to peace and love preached by the San Francisco scene began to fall on deaf ears, and the time was right for the MC5. The idea that you should be kind and gentle all the time wasn't working. And Wayne Kramer, Fred Sonic Smith, Rob Tyner, Michael Davis, and Dennis Thompson took their anger at the world and channeled it into what will become the first cornerstone of punk rock's foundation, the MC5. The Democratic National Convention in Chicago, where all the riots took place in 1968, Chicago 7, etc. During that weekend in Chicago, there were five or six different riots at different points. Um, we were involved in one of those riots. There were supposed to be six or seven groups to show up to play in a flatbed truck trailer. And uh, Janis Joplin was supposed to be there, and Moby Grape, and the Stooges, and Ted Nugent, and Bob Seger, and a couple other groups. No one showed up but the MC5. Uh, <clears throat> we were the crazy ones. We just had no fear. And we thought it was a good place to be at the time to show support for what we really had put had been playing and been preaching uh, in our rhetoric all along that it's time to take a stand because there was a bit of a revolution going on. We were called the point vanguard by the media. They labeled us the vanguard of the revolution. That was not our intention to be the vanguard of any revolution. Our intention was to play the music and just to have fun and be better than the Rolling Stones. Out of this came the MC5's seminal release, Kick Out the Jams and they provided a much-needed foil in American music to the sounds on the radio that had grown from a counterculture movement to pop cliché. It preached something radically different, embracing the militant activism of their manager, the poet, 
John Sinclair, they were throwing a different kind of party. White Panther program is cultural revolution by any means necessary. Uh, we've drawn up a 10-point program. First point is uh, full endorsement and support for the Black Panther Party's 10-point program. Uh, point two is uh, total assault on the culture by any means necessary, including rock and roll dope and fucking in the streets. The music they played was similar in some ways to the San Francisco sound, inasmuch as it was a loose, blues-based idiom that favored longer solos. But it was differentiated by the intense edge of the songs, raw and unpolished, overly political, and not shying away from inciting violence. Because they were, in the end, a reaction against, and the next logical step from, the San Francisco counterculture. They didn't find a mass market, and even after getting a big feature in Rolling Stone, were never more than an underground band. And by 1972, they were done. Their influence continues to this day, but at the time, it left the underground with a void waiting to be filled. We're sponsoring a new band. It's called The Velvet Underground. And, uh, and we're trying to... Well, since I don't really believe in painting anymore, I thought it would be a nice way of combining, uh, and we have this chance to combine music and, and art and uh, uh, films all together, and, uh, and we're sort of working on that. And Meanwhile, in New York, a vastly different scene and sound had emerged in the late 60s, fueled by Andy Warhol's factory scene. Located on East 47th Street, the factory was a large fourth-floor loft that was part art studio, part performance space, and part party scene. The factory was the center of experimental art and music in New York City, and the soundtrack was provided by the Velvet Underground. It was, in effect, a cocoon. Free from the protest and anger over Vietnam, models, poets, artists, and musicians lived in a different world, creating some of the most challenging art of the 20th century. You know, the people like it. And the people like it. Uh, I mean, you know, it really turns me on and turns them on. I mean, we don't have any, put it this way, we don't have any point to prove or any axe to grind or, uh, you know, just anything to tell anybody else you know what i mean it's just um it's just nice that people show up and that we can play them this was a blessing and a curse free to develop their sound the velvet underground began creating brilliant music but they were unable to get a record deal the advantage of having andy warhol as a producer was that because he was andy warhol they left everything in its pure state which and they would say is that okay mr warhol and he'd say oh yeah. And so they didn't change anything. And so right at the very beginning, we experienced what it was like to be in the studio and record things our way and have essentially total freedom. Not to be denied the chance to be heard, they inadvertently created the DIY ethic that is so important to punk. 
Lou Reed on guitar and vocals, John Cale on everything, guitarist Sterling Morrison, and drummer Mo Tucker, along with German model singer Nico, released Velvet Underground and Nico in 1967, and it was a revelation. There were ballads, folk songs, even pop-infused melodies, all filtered through a deliberately rough and noisy approach. It was stripped down with John Cale's avant-garde guitar being the defining characteristic. This coupled with Lou Reed's unique take on the streets of New York that celebrated sex, drugs, and a look far removed from the San Francisco scene, made for one of the most unique and compelling bands in the history of American music. Gonna try if the MC5 the provided the sound of punk, Lou Reed provided its aesthetic with his all-black wardrobe and dark sunglasses. Though on the surface sounding completely different, both the MC5 and the Velvet Underground came from the same place. A desire to subvert and be an outsider, even reveling in it. The lyrics touched on subjects that made Middle America blush and sent out a call to all the alienated youth that we are here with you. What message is it that you're trying to get across? I don't have one. Would it be right to call your music well, gutter rock? Gutter rock? Gutter rock. Oh, yeah. Lou Reed continued to create challenging musical and cultural statements into the 70s and beyond, while John Cale turned his attention to the Motor City in producing a band called The Stooges. Next episode, we head back to Detroit before following Iggy Pop to New York, where a revolution was starting in the Bowery. I'm Kevin Hogan, and this is Beautiful Garbage, presented by Osiris Media. For more podcasts that connect you deeply to the music you love, check out OsirisPod.com. Osiris.